When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Good evening, everyone. Uh, And we do begin the readout tonight with the investigation into the ongoing threat to our democracy today. A member of the disgraced former president's inner circle did what many others have refused to do, show up before the House Select Committee on the January 6th insurrection. But he refused to talk. Longtime Trump advisor and veteran dirty trickster Roger Stone invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. I did invoke my Fifth Amendment rights to every question, not because I have done anything wrong, but because I am fully aware of the House Democrats' long history uh, of fabricating perjury charges on the basis of comments that are innocuous, immaterial, or irrelevant. Now, for the record, Stone was previously convicted of lying to Congress. And the only reason he's a free man today is because the Mango Mussolini commuted his prison sentence last year and later pardoned him. Congressional investigators are looking into Stone's involvement in the planning of anti-democratic rallies on January 5th and 6th, leading to the attack on the Capitol. The committee says Stone both promoted his appearance at the rally at the Ellipse and solicited donations for security noting that he has said that he was invited to lead a march to the Capitol, but didn't end up going. Stone was subpoenaed two weeks ago, along with right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones. NBC News has learned that a deposition for Jones scheduled for tomorrow has been postponed. As the committee continues its investigation, following this week's vote to hold former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows in criminal contempt. Senate Senate Minority Leader Addison Mitch McConnell, now in the twilight of his career, fresh from re-election with no elections to worry about for six years, if ever again, and having successfully thieved, connived and bullied the 6-3 right-wing Supreme Court he's always wanted into existence, has returned to stating the obvious. I think the fact-finding is interesting. We're all going to be watching it. It was a horrendous event. And um, I think that what they're Seeking to find out is something the public needs to know. Oh, really, Addison? That is the same Mitch McConnell who, in May, led Senate Republicans in blocking a bill to create a bipartisan commission to investigate the siege on the Capitol. Because you can always smell the brimstone. He is now saying that he's watching what's unfolding on the House side and which participants are revealed. Because while the clown show of Roger Stone is a spectacle, and it is a spectacle, the real question is, What were sitting members of Congress doing and who were they communicating with on January 6th? Like election denying Congressman Jim Jordan, whose office admitted that he was one of the lawmakers whose text to Mark Meadows was revealed this week. That's something one of my next guests says is written confirmation that Jordan is a traitor to the Constitution. And joining me now is Congressman Ruben Gallego of Arizona, Don Calloway, Democratic strategist and founder of the National Voter Protection Action Fund, and Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor and an MSNBC columnist. And I'm going to start with you, Congressman Gallego. This is the text that was one of the texts that was read during the proceedings to hold Mark Meadows in contempt. 
And this was the text. On January 6, 2021, Vice President Mike Pence, as president of the Senate, should call out all electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional as no electoral votes at all. In accordance with guidance from founding father Alexander Hamilton and judicial precedents, he goes on and on and on, citing that precedent, basically saying that the vice president should throw out the results of the election. Now, he forwarded that text. I'm not saying he wrote it, but he forwarded it to Mark Meadows. You said that means that he is a traitor to the Constitution. Please explain. Look, there it was a very clear election uh, with little to no fraud. Uh, what he was doing is, is interfering in the procession of Congress in terms of passing on uh, in democracy uh, in the and using, you know, very fluttery words of, you know, James Madison that absolutely have nothing to do with uh, the powers of the vice president that day as an excuse to obstruct the power of Congress is still illegal. Uh, and therefore, in my opinion, a traitorous act trying to stop uh, the peaceful transfer of power. Uh, he's going to come up with excuses saying that, you know, well, this is my duty. I have a right to do it. But as I try to explain to some of my friends, especially my Republican friends, that's like, you know, a, uh, a criminal being caught by a, a police officer in the middle of it, just start starting to scream Mayberry, Mayberry versus Madison. Like it makes no sense. You're still a traitor. It doesn't mean doesn't matter how you basically wrap up your uh, your your reasoning for it. Let me broaden this out just a little bit, Congressman. You know, before the Civil War, there were literal traitors in the United States House and Senate, people who were siding with what turned out to be an enemy faction trying to secede from the United States and then making war upon the United States. That same flag was flown by some of the insurrectionists as they entered our Capitol, defiled it, defecated inside of it, et cetera, um, and occupied offices. So there, there have been literal traitors in the United States Congress before. Do you believe that the insurrectionists supporting members of the House of Representatives and the Senate are traitors. I certainly think the organizers of it, and I think Jim Jordan is one of those, are traitors. Um, I do believe that they are just as bad as the insurrections that we're breaking through. Uh, just because you wear a, a tie, or well, actually Jim Jordan doesn't wear a tie, just because he once in a while wears uh, a sport coat, uh, you know, it does not mean that he's not just as bad as the guy that was wearing, uh, you know, the, the camouflage and carrying, uh, you know, the Confederate flag. As a matter of fact, he's more dangerous than the yahoos because he actually has access to power, access to information, and actually knows the process of, of, of how to actually stall uh, democracy. And, and let me come to you on this, Glenn, because the question then is, did these people commit a crime? You know, you, we've now seen that members of Congress were texting guidance to the chief of staff saying, hey, here's some ideas on how we might be able to undo the election. CNN is now reporting that one of the other people who was sending, you know, strategies to try to help is Rick Perry, who used to be the uh, governor of Texas and then joined the administration, that he apparently, at least according to CNN, he denies it, was pushing this aggressive strategy, supposedly, um, to try to also overturn the election and get Mike Pence to do it. Um, again, Perry denies it, but, you know, CNN says he was one of the people that was doing it. Um, you had multiple House members saying, here's some strategies, circulating this really bananas PowerPoint that says that China and, and dead Hugo Chavez and lots of other people were stealing the election. These things are horrible. Are they crimes? So, Joy, I agree with the congressman that Jim Jordan is a traitor to the Constitution. I also believe there's probable cause that Jim Jordan committed a crime by forwarding that text to Mark Meadows. And, and here's why. Jim Jordan forwarded a text urging Meadows to tell Vice President Pence to throw out electoral votes, to basically undermine Joe Biden's win. And he did it after 
Donald Trump's own attorney general, Bill Barr, said there was no fraud undermining Joe Biden's win. And he did it after Trump's own officials like Christopher Krebs said this was the safest, most secure election in U.S. history. The same thing that Trump's agencies like the Department of Homeland Security said. After all of that, as the congressman said, you could put any pretty words on it. You can scream Marbury versus Madison or any other Supreme Court precedent. What Jim Jordan did by forwarding that text was obstruct an official proceeding. And that statute, which is a 20 year felony, says if you actually obstruct or you attempt to obstruct or you endeavor to impede an official congressional proceeding like the electoral vote count, you've committed the federal felony of obstructing an official proceeding. That is what Jim Jordan did. Yeah, and Don Calway, this, I, I then go to you on sort of the, the, the kind of politics and the sort of aesthetics of the way this is playing out. I think that the proceeding against Mark Meadows, to me, was the most effective presentation we've seen so far because they were giving us data. They were saying members of Congress did X. Members of Congress mm-hmm. said Y. People were, inter, you know, interacting with the chief of staff. So we've got that. Do you think that it would be good, sort of good for the country to see um, and to experience members of Congress being subpoenaed before this committee. They're sitting in the body, but they were also committing the alleged crimes. Should this committee, which does, it's, it's bipartisan, they have two Republicans on it, should they start uh, subpoenaing people like Jim Jordan? Absolutely, they have to, and here's why. We had this conversation, I know Glenn Kershaw and I have many times, about why the president needed to be impeached, even when we knew that we didn't have the votes to convict him on the Democratic side. It had to happen so you can make the case for the American people. And maybe that matters for 2022 and 24 politically, but it mostly matters for the archives of history because we have to have a living, breathing record to show what these criminals did while in the White House and now, in this instance, while in the People's House of Representatives. This will be the guide for what not to do going forward. So you have to have those trials, even when you know it's not coming in the Senate, even when you know there will be no broad accountability in front of the Republican Politico, because we as people of faith, and frankly, the story of black folks in America is that you preserve the record so that future generations can see what they did when they tried to tear apart the Republic. Or you preserve the record so that maybe Merrick Garland, the Department of Justice, might wake up you know, as if from slumber and decide that maybe they should prosecute some folks. Uh, Any day now, we're waiting. Any second, you know. We believe in Christmas miracles. I'll be brief. The second reason you prosecute is because you have to make it clear that there's no distinction between the insurrectionists and the members. Insurrectionists are inside the House and you treat them the same way you treat insurrectionists by charging them in federal courts. Very quickly, um, very quick, very quickly, I've got, got to go to you, Glenn Kirshner, on this. What do you think is the significance? There's been a lawsuit because you, using the courts does work sometimes. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund announced today that they had uh, been working a lawsuit from the NAACP against Louis DeJoy and the post office. It's a big deal because Louis DeJoy seemed to be using the post office to interfere with the election in another way, slowing down ballots. Is this going to be what are we going to wind up doing civil cases because of the lackadaisical DOJ? Well, unless and until the Department of Justice steps up, picks up the pace and starts to indict people that we've seen commit crimes in the harsh light of day. As a former career DOJ employee, I'm still scratching my head because we've seen no prosecutions of consequence. Um, So, you know what? We have to fill the void with righteous 
lawsuits because Trump and company use the court system for their own nefarious purposes. Delay, 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 run out the clock. So, you know what? Righteous lawsuits should be brought and hopefully they will have, you know, have some hope of dislodging the joys of the world. Absolutely. Well, and you've also got the RNC paying for Donald Trump's legal bills for his tax crimes in New York, um, alleged tax crimes in New York. Uh, Congressman Gallo, I, I would I would be remiss if I didn't have you here. This is a bizarre story. The Daily Beast is reporting that you've been threatened with kidnapping by a Russian politician because what you have said um, this that that. You have said this is how we should be dealing with these. No, he's saying this is how we should be dealing with these bastards talking about you because you said that Russian escalation toward Ukraine could lead to a harsh military response from the U.S. and that the U- and that Ukraine should be provided with weapons by the United States, um, saying that, you know, that might mean some warfare. That might mean some Russians might die. Their response to you has been that you should be kidnapped. What what are your thoughts and are you getting protection um for yourself now that you're getting threatened by the Russians. We know they've poisoned, they're allegedly, there have been alleged poisonings. There are things that have happened that have led people to believe that they're, they're quite dangerous. They're, they're not going to do anything. I mean, attacking a member of Congress is akin to war, um, except, I guess, if you're uh, insurrectionists. <laughs> but that's a different <laughs> story. Look, um, my statement was very clear, and it's because I support democracy. Ukraine is a democratic institution. It's being uh, basically hunted and targeted by an autocrat, Uh, and Putin and the Russian uh, bear in general. And I don't want to send any troops into Ukraine. I absolutely have said that 100%. But I do want to give Ukraine the capability for it to defend itself. And we have not given them that opportunity. The last four years under Trump, we basically withheld a lot of diplomatic support as well as actual material support. So um, I'm trying to change that too. And I went to Ukraine, brought a bipartisan group of, of members to there. And we want to make sure democracy survives there as well as I wanted to make sure it survives here. And by the way, yeah. they are both connected. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It would be nice if it could survive here. Wouldn't that be great? Um, Congressman, uh, Congressman Ruben Gallego, thank you very much. Glenn Kirshner, Don Calloway will be back later for Who Won the Week. Up next on The Readout, the damning new report on Trump's outright malfeasance in his COVID response, deliberately undermining efforts to address the crisis last year. Plus, she claims that she mistook her gun for a taser when she shot and killed Dante Wright during a traffic stop. Former officer Kim Potter takes the stand in Minnesota. And how cool is this? I got to speak to the real Maria from Sesame Street, actress Sonia Manzano, about the new HBO documentary Street Gang, how we got to Sesame Street. I was raised in the Bronx watching hours of television, never seeing any Puerto Ricans on television or any Latin people on television and feeling invisible. So when they asked me to be on this show, I thought, oh my goodness, I could be for kids what I wished there was someone there for me when I was a kid. Oh my God, the real Maria. You do not want to miss that. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. 
With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. A new report by the House Oversight Committee reveals a damning uh, reveals damning new details about just how derelict and political Trump's response to COVID really was, saying the Trump administration, quote, engaged in a staggering pattern of political interference in the pandemic response and failed to heed early warnings about the crisis. According to the report, Trump blocked CDC briefings and media appearances. The committee also investigated how COVID hit meatpacking workers at the five largest conglomerates. The report says infections and deaths among meatpacking workers for these companies were nearly three times higher than previously estimated. Yet Trump made a political decision not to issue regulations for these companies to protect their workers. Trump's chaos and lies have left an awful handprint on how the pandemic is experienced today. It's so deeply partisan. It's as if we live in two separate countries, one that cares about surviving COVID and one that is simply over it. According to a new poll, 96% of Democrats have received the vaccine, compared to 54% of Republicans. 30% of the Republicans say they will never get vaccinated, even as Omicron, as Omicron burns through America. It's that old, familiar sinking feeling we first felt almost two years ago. A surge like wildfire. Average daily COVID hospitalizations are now up 19% in the last two weeks. And today... New York State reported its highest number of daily COVID cases of the entire pandemic at more than 21,000. Joining me now is critical care pulmonologist Dr. Vin Gupta and David Jolly, national chair of the Serve America movement and a former Republican congressman who's no longer affiliated with the party. And, you know, Dr. Gupta, I, I feel like, you know, we've been having this conversation for almost two years now, and it does feel like there are kind of two kinds of people who are over COVID. In my experience, it's the people in my life who've gotten vaccinated and gotten boosted and are like, if these red state people want to die of COVID, let them. I'm over it. They're, they have compassion fatigue. So they're going on and living their lives because they're vaxxed and they're wearing their masks when they need to. And then you have the people in the sort of red state world who just say, I don't care about COVID. I don't care if 10 million people are dead from it. I don't care. I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not getting vaxxed. I'm living my life. With those two sets of people not just being over it, period. Are we ever going to get over COVID? <laughs> Is it ever going to go away? Uh, well, Joy, good evening. Really nice to see you. I, I, I will say that psychologically, we have to move towards a new sense of normal here. And this is where I'm going to lean into my uh, identity as a lung doc and say that uh, if we talk about the vaccine clearly, about what it can and cannot do, Thinking about the flu vaccine, for example, I think well, the flu vaccine will keep you away from somebody like me. It will not prevent positive tests or even mild symptoms. I do think that clarity and talking about the vaccine, setting realistic expectations, it's not going to reach 100% of Republicans, but it might help us reach that additional 16% that have yet to get vaccinated, which will help in hospital systems like McKellen, Texas, and other places that are going to experience surges. So I do think clarity there is going to be important. I think updating the definition of fully vaccinated is going to be really critical here. But then come March, April, we have to be clear to all of us, regardless of uh, partisan stripe, that there's a chance you might test positive. You might develop mild symptoms, hopefully in the majority of cases, especially if you're triple vaccinated. And then that's OK. That's actually what real life is going to look like here moving forward. There's no zero risk. There's no eradication. That's what the new normal is going to look like. And I think the more that Omicron has allowed us 
the opportunity to actually shift our frame and our thinking sooner than I think we otherwise would have. You know, and there are, um, David, the sort of the, the idiot crew, right? The, the, the Tucker Carlson's, the Tuckums, who literally yeah. is like, yeah. you know, sort of preaching death at this point because he's vaccinated, I'm sure. And he doesn't care. <laughs> They're never going to get near him and cough on him. But let me just play him. This is what he did the other day, sort of giving his unsolicited advice. Here he is. If you find yourself living in a place where people are still talking about COVID nonstop two years in, it is time to move. Not just because your neighbors have been brainwashed, though obviously they have been, but because your neighbors are boring. At this point, it is simply not an interesting topic for your private life. Yes, COVID has killed a lot of people, so has prostate cancer. Imagine telling people about your prostate every day for the next two years. Right. And so, so, you know, people like him don't care how many people die. D- death means nothing to him. He's like Donald Trump. It's a sociopathic sort of sense of so people are dying. Get over it. I don't want to hear about dying. You know what I mean? Just leave me alone. I just want to go to the bar. Right. But then there are also people like there's this Atlantic piece that is sort of rocketing all through the social medias by this guy, Matthew Walther, sure. where he says, I don't. And he's saying kind of the same thing. I don't know how to put it this in a way that will not make me sound flippant. No one cares outside the world inhabited by the professional and managerial classes in a handful of major metropolitan areas. Many, if not most, most Americans are leading their lives as if COVID is over, and they have been for a long while. Um, he's an editor of a Catholic literary journal, journal, where there's also this sense of people just don't care that a lot of people are dying. They just want to live their lives. And I'm telling you, I am seeing that when I'm now traveling again. There you go to some of these cities, and that is true. People are done with COVID, and they either are vaccinated and are, are vaxxed and relaxed, or they just are cold to the idea that a lot of people are dying even if they're in a high death city. So what do we do about that? Yeah, you know, Joy, I think you're right. There's a lot of people that are over it, perhaps prematurely, be out of fatigue. But there are also those who, who are over it because they've been fed misinformation that they've accepted. Uh, my wife and I have a friend who passed away with COVID, believing it was not a big deal, that actually even once he contracted it, he didn't need to see physicians for it. Well, ultimately, within about 10 days, he had passed away. And he did so because he was listening to voices of misinformation. And that is exactly what what Tucker Carlson is projecting on the American public when he questions masks, when he questions vaccines, when he questions the public health guidance. It is dangerous misinformation that jeopardizes the health of our communities and ultimately can lead to the deaths of fellow Americans. And, And I think that's the critical thing here, right? You don't go to a dentist to fix your car and you don't go to an auto mechanic to work on your teeth. You certainly don't need to listen to untrained voices about what the public health science is around COVID. And and ultimately, then that rests on our political leaders. And as you said in the intro, we have divided our country along political lines on what is essentially a public health matter. And that is where the danger lies, because the thing about voices of leadership is people follow them. And so whether you're in the media or in the public arena or you're in the political arena, you have a greater responsibility to your fellow countrymen on issues of public health than you do to your ratings or to your income. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's clear that that Donald Trump bollocks the covid. He he messed it up. And, and, it, and now I think it's so broken He's broken it so thoroughly that it's impossible to fix what was busted. Right. Yeah. But, but Dr. Gupta, what worries me is that it doesn't matter if you don't believe that COVID is real. COVID is here. And now we're hearing that the Omicron variant is not responsive to monoclonal antibodies. So when people like the attorney general in Florida say, go ahead, get COVID. Don't worry, we'll treat you with some with monoclonal antibodies. They may not work at this point. 
This thing is surging so fast that we may not be able to treat it with their magical cures. And so I guess the question for you, for those of us who actually do believe COVID is, is real and we do care if people die, it actually, we are, we actually have a heart and actually don't want people to die and don't want doctors to be overworked and overwhelmed and nurses and docs to just be, you know, their lives destroyed by seeing people die. Should we, I don't know, give us some advice. What do we do at this point? Are we all going to get COVID? <laughs> are we, is this the reality? Are we eventually all going to get it because these anti-vaxxers are just going to make us get it? You know, Joy, let's start there. And then I do want to get to the monoclonal piece. So I'll try to be concise. I I think it is to this issue of hesitancy and and frankly, the fact that some people say they're never going to get it, whether it's political or not. This is where clarity and resetting expectations, I think, is vital. I am hearing across the spectrum that the emergence of Omicron saying we need a third shot, all these breakthroughs in the NFL and otherwise are being used or being co-opted this reality to say, well, the vaccines have failed. And in part, I do think we need to acknowledge and have the awareness to say we we in public health need to reset expectations more clearly. You talk to any pulmonologist here, you have one right here. They'll, they'll tell you a vaccine against a contagious, constantly changing respiratory virus will never prevent a positive test or mild symptoms. Its best hope is to keep you away from folks like me and ICUs. That needs to be the message moving forward. And we need to be really clear on that. Yeah. And I'm saying that from the highest levels. That's number one. Yeah. To monoclonals, to your point, I have fielded probably 10 calls from loved ones, from family members, from friends, trying to get a monoclonal for somebody that's 65 and older who had breakthrough yeah. illness. And that's what we're worried about here. Go to combatcovid.hhs.gov to learn more. They still work against Delta. We're developing new ones for Omicron, but they still work against Delta. Yeah, well, we, we need to listen to experts and don't listen to Tucker Carlson and Donald Trump. They don't care if you die. I mean, let's just be honest. They really don't care. He, uh, Tuckum thinks it's boring, all of you all, if you die. It's just boring to him. He doesn't care. Don't look to him for your health advice. Uh, Dr. Vin Gupta, who you should listen to for your health advice. Uh, and David Jolly, my friend, thank you very much. And he will be back later for Who Thanks. Won the Week. Still ahead, former Minnesota police officer Kim Potter takes the stand as she faces manslaughter charges in the deadly shooting of Dante Wright during a traffic stop. We'll hear what she had to say and talk about which way the scales of justice might be leaning next. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on TVs, streaming, game console, consoling, smart thermostat, set for cuddle time, doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Today, former Minnesota police officer Kim Potter took to the stand in her own defense. Potter is charged with two counts of manslaughter after she shot and killed 20-year-old Dante Wright at a traffic stop last April, claiming she confused her gun for her taser. We were struggling. We were trying to keep him from driving away. It just, it just went chaotic. I, it, 
And then I remember yelling, taser, 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 and nothing happened. And then he told me I shot him. testified that she reached for her taser because she feared for her fellow officer's safety. But as the prosecution pointed out, that is not what she said in an earlier interview with a psychologist who was a defense witness. Do you see the portion where it explains when asked by this examiner why she decided to draw her taser? Officer Potter states, I don't have an answer. My brain said, grab the taser. Do you recall that? I don't recall it, but it's in his paperwork. Closing arguments are scheduled to be in Monday. With me now, Melissa Murray, law professor at NYU and an MSNBC legal analyst, and Mark Claxton, retired NYPD detective and director of the Black Law Enforcement Alliance. Thank you both for being here. I have to start with you, Mark, um, because the, the idea that a trained police officer with more than 20 years on the force could not tell a taser from a a, a Glock to me is so completely nonsensical that it makes no sense to me. These are the pictures of what the two, um, fire, the two uh, firearms look like. Um, they're different weights or different colors. This is her testimony. So let's just go into the training first. Let me play this real quick. And then I have a question for you. Here's the prosecution who you might recognize from the Chauvin trials, Derek Chauvin trials, the same set of prosecutors, some of them, um, questioning Ms. Potter on her taser training here. Here's that. Part of the taser policy includes that all training should include performing reaction hand draws or cross draws to reduce the possibility of accidentally drawing and firing a firearm. That's part of the policy, right? That's what it says. And that's part of what you're trained to do, correct? We didn't always draw from our, we aren't always drawing our tasers from our holsters. A lot of times we were in plain clothes during training. Okay. Well, your policy that you're required to abide by, that you signed off on, requires that you perform reaction hand draws, true? During the training, yes. Mark Claxton, does any of this defense make sense to you? Uh, not at all. And it's no excuse uh, for a professionally trained police officer and an experienced professionally trained police officer to confuse uh, the taser for the firearm. Uh, it, that testimony and other testimony related to training uh, that a professional police officer uh, uh, undergoes on a regular basis uh, um, uh, she was very dismissive of a lot of the training. As a matter of fact, disdainful. She came across as really like offended uh, to even answer a question about training and, and, and those type of standards. And what's really pointed, what should be pointed out is just as in a Chauvin uh, case, she's a field training officer. She's the one who is training the next generation of police officers how to do things correctly and properly, supposedly. Just like Chauvin, she was a field training officer and had a trainee along with her. A lot of her testimony, a lot of her positions, and just her demeanor uh, clearly displays that 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 there is a high level of culpability uh, for criminal activity in regards to her. And yet, uh, Melissa, it is, again, a real question as to whether what seems like an open and shut case to the layman um, will, will really work out that way. I mean, she did the, the crying check. The jury is nearly all white. There's only one person of color on the jury. Check. Now, that always doesn't always work out, because if you look at the Chauvin trial or you look at the trial of the men who murdered um, Ahmaud Arbery, it didn't work out for them quite that way to get that almost all white jury. But 
you know, she gets up there and does sort of a sympathetic crying thing. And then you've got the burden of proof on the prosecutors to prove that she, you know, acted with some deliberation. So what do you make of where we stand in terms of this trial? Well, again, as you say, the burden is always on the state to prove the charges beyond a reasonable doubt. And the two charges here are manslaughter in the first degree and manslaughter in the second degree. And those are both homicide charges. Manslaughter in the first degree is essentially a killing, an intentional killing, but in the heat of passion. Manslaughter in the second degree is an unintentional sort of negligent killing. And I think that goes to where the prosecutor was going today. Like, you should have known better and you didn't do better. That's negligence. But it is really an uphill battle. And as you say, the prosecutor has to convince this jury beyond a reasonable doubt. And here she is in a cardigan with a cross on a pen, a pendant and looking like a grandmother and crying. And I think, you know, that may be very resonant with some of these jurors. Do you think, Melissa, that this case was overcharged? I mean, there was the pressure because of the, the you know, the George Floyd situation and the charging, do you think they might have hit too high with the charges and maybe they should have charged her with something easier to prove? Well, that's always a question, I think, for the prosecution, and it was especially so here. Um, as you note, uh, the Chauvin trial was going on when this occurred, and so this was being charged against the backdrop of that trial, and there were people who were really calling for something to hold her accountable. There was all, of, of course, the initial reluctance of the chief of police to denounce or condemn her, and that led to some public outcry. So I think there really was a lot of public pressure to yeah. put a homicide charge on the table. And, and Mark, what will be the message to other police if this if she does get off? Because one of the things that she said is, well, if she hadn't been training this other guy, she probably wouldn't have even pulled the man over. And she ends up shooting and killing him and saying, oops, not my taser. What message does that send to law enforcement if she walks away uh, a free woman? It'll just reinforce uh, the same message that law enforcement uh, normally receives during these type of proceedings and the justification for this toxic police culture that too often leads to these fatal encounters involving black and brown people. It's a classic defense strategy. You know, ignore the pretextual stop, ignore the deviation from perhaps department policy or department directives saying, listen, in COVID, we don't necessarily need to focus on these registration yeah. or air freshness, ignore that, ignore the training failures, ignore yeah. whether or not there was even a justification for using any level of force in this particular case. Right. And that focus on the two seconds, if you will, where yeah. they, they pull the trigger, where they discharge a firearm and decide whether or not the police officer was quote unquote justified. Never mind these negligent terms or reckless terms. We really yeah. want you, we want you to say, was she sufficiently scared or startled enough right. to be justified? Yeah. And then that comes down to, is she scared of this young black man? And then it's yeah. it never really, really That's goes in the way that we think it's going to go. Uh, Melissa Murray, Mark Claxton, thank you both very much. Happy holidays. All right. Who on the week is still ahead? But first, my conversation with the director of a new documentary about a show we all know and adore, Sesame Street, and one of its beloved stars, the actress who played Maria we will talk about the show's grand break, groundbreaking diversity then and now. Don't miss it. Green could be big like an ocean, or important like a mountain, or tall like a tree. And I remember thinking, are they singing about what I think they're singing when about? Of course they were singing about race. But they were also singing about could being down in the dumps because you're a little green frog. 
Some kids just thought it was about a little green puppet, and other kids thought about maybe it was something else. For more than 50 years, the Muppets that live on one of America's most famous streets have been entertaining and, more importantly, educating generations of children. Sesame Street helped teach my kids important lessons and values that they still hold today, especially the idea that we can all live together, no matter what street we come from or what color our skin, fur, or feathers are. Of course, Sesame Street is not immune to today's culture of hyperpartisan attacks, but in truth, it has faced opposition since its inception in 1969. In fact, just months after its debut, the show was temporarily banned in Mississippi because of its diversity. A new HBO documentary, Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street, shares the origins of this American treasure and how such a talented ensemble came together to create a brand new concept in learning that still holds true today. Joining me now is the director of the documentary, Marilyn Agrello and Sonia Manzano, the actress who played Maria on Sesame Street more than for more than 40 years. And I'm fangirling out because um, you're one of my absolute heroes, Maria. Oh, my God. I can't believe I'm talking to the real Maria. So I'm just going to say I'm just excited to talk to you. You helped raise me and I and my kids. And I feel like you're everything. So just talk a little bit about you, what you talked about in that clip a little bit, because it's not that easy being green. My crew knows it's one of my favorite songs. Um, my EP Tina sent it to me and I nearly sat here and cried listening to it. Ray Charles singing it with um, Kermie. But, you know, you caught on to something that I think a lot of people miss, that that song meant something to a little brown kid uh, and my little brown kids, because it was about being different. Um, talk a little bit about what Sesame Street means. I sure I sure will. Absolutely. I'll never forget that moment, because when I walked in on the song, Lena Horne was singing it with Kermit the Frog. So <laughs> so and I, I had just I wasn't a writer on the show, so I didn't know the behind the scenes yibbity yibbity what was going on. <laughs> but I certainly knew that while this this was nuanced and it was working on a lot of levels and it was sophisticated and I was thrilled to be a part of it. It, it was. It's incredible. And um, Marilyn, let's talk about this movie, because, you know, I think a lot of people kind of missed that point. It was pretty revolutionary to create something like Sesame Street in the 1960s, in the late 1960s, when we still had an active fight over civil rights going on. We had just lost Dr. King the year before. There was still a lot of volatility racially. How did this incredible thing get started? This is one of my favorite things about this story. The fact that, yes, it's a movie about Sesame Street, but it really is a story of this group of performers, writers, educators who came out of this tumultuous point in our country. The, the protests against the Vietnam War were in full steam. Mm -hmm. The women's movement was just starting. The civil rights movement was burgeoning. And this group got together and said, we want to make a difference. We want to reach underserved children. They wanted to reach all children, but they really wanted to reach children in the inner city, as it was known then, and uh, give them a shot. And also reflect back to them people that look the way they looked. This was the first mixed race cast living in the same neighborhood that was ever shown on TV. And it was came to us through the lens of a show that was for three and four year olds, which is quite something. 
And, you know, and, and I can speak. Go on, Sonia. I, I just I just want to add that it, it was meant so much to me to get on the show because I was raised in the Bronx watching hours of television, never seeing any Puerto Ricans on television or any Latin people on television and feeling invisible. So when they asked me to be on this show, I thought, oh, my goodness, I could be for kids what I wish there was someone there for me when I was a kid. And I have to say to you, and I keep on not, I keep on almost calling you Maria, but I'm not going to do that. You, you literally were one. Honestly, I think you might have been the first Latina that I really saw on a regular basis on TV. And that I think for a lot of kids and I grew up in a town that was majority black and brown. And so, you know, for the Latina kids, for the black kids, like we were not seeing a lot of people of color, but we saw you and you were our friend, you know. And I, and can, I, I want to get your take first just on the fight that we've seen we just had an Asian-American Muppet that was introduced to Sesame Street, a little puppet who's Asian-American. We, we had, you know, Muppets who were black, Muppets who represented African-Americans. All of that has happened on Sesame Street. What do you make of this fight about this adorable new Asian-American Muppet? I, I, I just can't understand it. I can't fathom why, why it's difficult. I, I, uh, I wish it had come on sooner I think that when we had um, a Roosevelt Franklin on the show, I refer to him as the Roosevelt Franklin syndrome. It was difficult because he was the first black puppet and he didn't fulfill everybody's dreams of what a black puppet should be. Too street, not street enough, Uh, too hip hop, not hip hop enough. Sadly, what happened was they cut the puppet because everybody couldn't agree how a black puppet should be presented. There wasn't another black puppet on Sesame Street for 50 years. And uh, that's the problem when people can't decide or they think they think a whole culture has to rest on the shoulders of one character. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Marilyn, I think that's the point, too. There is no character who can make everyone happy. But Sesame Street probably has tried more than any other show in history to represent every child. You know, even uh, all of the, the, you know, not even real children. I mean, there are little red Muppets and purple Muppets and Muppet who can fly. You know, I'm a Grover girl. I love Grover because he's super uh, and he's Grover. Um, but I mean, it's like there's every fantasy kind of creature and fairy tale friend I just wonder, what will we learn about Sesame Street? Because that's subversive to have done in the 1960s. What do you want people to take away from this documentary? I want people to take away the fact that, first of all, Sesame Street did what they have done throughout their whole history, which is reflect the world back to children as the world should be, without even calling attention to it, without pointing a finger and saying, look, there's a black puppet. Look, there's an Asian puppet. It's just what is. And I want people to uh, realize that, you know, creativity and art really can make a difference and change the world. And when you uh, present something this creative and this inspiring to children, you really can inspire them to think of the world in a a way that is um, pure and loving. I cannot wait to watch this documentary. I'm probably going to cry all the way from beginning until the very end. And I'm going to be so excited. My kids are going to be so jealous that I got to meet the real Maria. They're going to be excited. Be like, what? But it happened. Thank you. Happy holidays. Congratulations. Marilyn Argello, Sonia Manzano. Thank you, sisters. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate you both. Happy holidays. And we'll be right back. Thank you. Gracias. Felicidades. Bye. 
All right, we survived another week in Ragnarok, folks. Oh, my God, I love my producers. So now it's time to play. Ah, uh, yes, who won the week? Back with me, Don Calloway and David Jolly. Ooh, where to go first? Where to go first? Hmm. All right. In the spirit of ex-bipartisanship, since you were a former Republican who's not a Republican anymore, David Jolly, I'm going to let you go first. Who won the week? The January 6th committee. Republicans want to undermine them. Democrats are growing impatient. But, Joy, this week they painted a picture of a conspiracy to commit uh, an authoritarian toppling of our democracy, a conspiracy that included now members of the legislative branch, uh, the inner circle of the president from the White House chief of staff to the former energy secretary to the political apparatus of the president himself. I think this is clearly going to a level in which you could indict the Department of Justice could indict sitting members of Congress. The one six committee won the week. Oh, that that is OK. All right. All right. Don Calloway. Tough act to follow. Who won the week? Don Calloway. Deion Sanders won the week. The legendary coach prime won the SWAC championship last week. He plays for the Celebration Bowl championship tomorrow. Landed the yep. number one route in the country to Jackson State University Come to play on. football. Coached him from Florida State fundamentally has a potential to shift the balance of power in favor of HBCU athletics. I'm here for it. Go Jackson State tomorrow. I, listen, I didn't go to HBCU. I did teach one. I did teach Howard, but I am so here for Jackson State winning that battle. I'm so here for the Mississippi comeback. Come on, Mississippi, because I love Jackson, Mississippi. It's a great city. Okay, but the real answer, you guys had great answers, but my answer to who won the week? Me! I won the week, and I'll tell you why. Because I'm here in California, so I go to meet with up with the Blurds, okay? So the Blurds are like black nerds who are into like comics and stuff like that, and Jason Johnson was there, and Yvette Nicole Brown, and guess who showed up? And Tiffany Cross, look who we met! LeVar Burton and Billy D. Williams. I hung out with them. Star Trek meets Star Wars. Yo, I won the week. This has been the most epic week in California. Thank you all. Happy holidays. Thank you, David Jolly, uh, Don Calloway. That's tonight's read There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.